As an angel investor in tech or venture, basically you're finding companies that nobody really knows about yet. And so you're really kind of like digging for those diamonds and trying to find them and trying to get in early. And many times it's way earlier than other people get the opportunity to invest in them. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. If you do not know who we are or what we are and your company is in the B2B tech space, check us out at salesassembly.com. We partner with companies to help every single person in your go-to-market org, from your BDRs to your marketers to your CSMs to your executive leaders, scale faster, better, and smarter. I am excited today to be on the line with Amber Illig. Amber, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Christina. I'm so excited to be on Taking the Lead and honestly just humbled to be here with all the other amazing speakers that you've had in the past. So I'm really excited to get started today. Thank you so much. I am also humbled. The incredible women that come in the show and spend their time with me, and you're no exception. So I would love to just hear a little bit about you. I'm really excited about our conversation today, and I think a lot of people are going to lean into the insights that I'm going to pull out of you. But before then, tell us how you got where you are. So right now, you're currently the head of operations at Atmos. You're also a partner at the council. Tell us your journey. Yeah. So big news, actually, a few weeks ago, I actually left my job as head of operations at Atmos. So I dove fully into running my venture fund full time, which is the council fund. So I am general partner at the council fund. And yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about, about my journey getting there. So I actually started my career. I was born in the Midwest, studied engineering, started my career in pharmaceutical manufacturing of all things. And I spent the basically ended up moving to the West Coast because of a connection between this medical device that I was working on at Eli Lilly and the iPhone at Apple, which I did not see myself. You know, some recruiter was able to find that connection on LinkedIn, but it turns out that the supply chains and the way that they were manufactured was really similar. And that really just kind of changed my life and my the course of my life. I didn't know anybody in the state of California and moved out here about seven years ago. And since then, I've been working in tech. So if you look at my career as a whole while working at tech, the first half of my career was focused on hardware and supply chain, of course, between Eli Lilly, Apple, and then Snap. And then while I was at Snap, we went through an IPO, and I also helped them launch their first hardware product. And then I kind of pivoted my career to go to market and product for software, because I wanted to know what's the other side of everything I see going on around me in Silicon Valley and, and even LA. And so I worked at Snap for a little bit while longer and then transitioned to Cruise where I spent three and a half years helping to you know, try to commercialize self-driving cars, which they're still working on, but they're oh. getting very close. And then I joined Atmos as head of operations, kind of took on a bigger executive position at a smaller company, which was a huge, huge opportunity for me. And, and then now I've gone full-time on my venture fund. And so I'm happy to kind of share where that came from and talk more about that. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about. I think what obviously piques my interest, and I think a lot of folks, is the idea of getting involved in a venture fund or being an investor of any kind, I think feels like it's so far out of reach. And yet, We hear about people all the time who are doing that. I think you going one step further and putting all of your eggs in that basket and how you got involved, I think is not only fascinating, but can teach a lot of people that it is within reach and kind of how to get there. So 
I think a great way to kick off would be just to talk a little bit about how did you first become an angel investor? How did you even get into this? Like, how does one find their way into doing that at all? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the fact that it is intimidating. Like a lot of yeah. people are like, hey, I'm over here in this career. And I see that thing over there. And it looks really different. And it used to be that there was really one path into venture, you kind of had to have a finance background. Many times it was an investment bank who spends years working for a bank and then moves over into an associate or maybe a principal role and kind of moves their way up the ladder in venture. And when I moved to Silicon Valley and started seeing all the technology and entrepreneurs around me, I was working at a bigger company, Apple, and I kind of felt like an outsider and I wanted to be closer to the core. I was raised by an entrepreneur who owned a small business, my dad, and I just wanted to be closer to people like that. And I had also, you know, worked very closely with executives and founders at all the different companies that I had worked for. And I was always kind of struck kind of seeing like the people around them and how non-diverse that group was. And so mm -hmm. I kind of, I figured, you know, if I'm not going to be a female founder myself, I kind of want to be on the other side of the table making decisions. I do invest in men and women, but it was important to me to be on the other side of the table making decisions because I saw that, you know, women are having trouble getting funding to even raise their first round of VC money. And then imagine every single round after that, there's going to be more fallout because they're having trouble relating to the investors they're talking to. And the same is true for minorities. And so I kind of had two different motivations, be closer to entrepreneurs and technology, and then also, you know, be a part of the equation that is really messed up right now. And I had had a couple of modest financial wins at Apple and Snap. When I worked for Apple, it was a really high growth period. And part of my compensation was in our equity in Apple stock. And then when I went to Snap, we went through an IPO and I also had stock in the company. And so it wasn't like life changing, like, oh, I could just you know leave my job and never work again. Not that I would necessarily be happy doing that, but it was enough that I was able to kind of carve off my own pool of capital and say, hey, this is an amount of my net worth that if I lost it all, I could sleep at night. And so I basically carved that off and I just set that as my mindset. And I, I had always been interested in venture and I knew I needed a track record because the tides were kind of turning. At the beginning I mentioned, you used to have this career path into venture where it was like you study finance and then you enter a, a firm and you work on this long ladder to get to the top as a partner, a general partner. And I wasn't interested in, you know, after a decade of my career, restarting and moving up a ladder. And so I had seen, you know, kind of the rise of the operator and the founders turned venture capitals or capitalists. And I knew that there was another path in, but I needed to build an, a track record as an angel investor first. And so what turns out is if you've been a leader at you know a company that's gone through a major growth phase or you've led a major function at a company, you actually have a lot of value to add to founders and and their teams as they're growing. And a lot of founders, you know, they're like serial entrepreneurs and they've never been past the seed stage. And so they don't know what their company's supposed to look like at series A or at series B and even when to hire the right roles. And so if you've operated at different different sizes, you have a lot to add as well. And so I didn't quite know. I had some taste of that and I that was my theory at the time. And so I decided to develop this track record. I carved out this piece of my net worth and I decided I'm just going to build my own VC portfolio. I'm going to operate like a VC fund and I'm going to write a consistent check size into every company and, you know, give myself time. I didn't really put a timeline limit on it, but it ended up being about two and a half to three years that I spent deploying this money over 30 companies. And so I invested in 30 companies, but what was important was at the start, I had no idea what I was doing. So I didn't know how do I meet founders and get deal flow, number one. And then number two, how do I diligence deals? And number three, just right. generally, what are all these terms and what do they mean? 
And so that was really daunting at first. And I actually remember, you know, wanting to find a, a community of other women angel investors or even one angel investor that I could learn from that was a, a woman. And I went on to angel list looking at all these, you know, syndicates and all of them were led by men at that point. I think I found like one after scrolling pages and pages, I found one that was led by a woman, but she was investing only in biotech, which I didn't feel like was going to be my sweet spot. So, so I was kind of struggling to even find a community. And I ended up going to a female founder event and just was really impressed with one of the female founders there, Tara from Rupa Health, actually. And she, I went up to her afterward and I told her that I had just started angel investing and I couldn't find any other female investors. And she linked me up with her friend, Courtney Bui-Lipkin, who linked me up with her friend, Annabelle Lippincott-Paxoy. And they were just starting a community called The Council. And so I attended the first meeting, absolutely fell in love with it because it was other operators like me who were actually trying to learn how to angel invest. And then there were a couple of people in there who were like super angels and had been doing, doing it for a really long time. And that community was incredible because we, you know, people in finance, product, marketing, engineering, and working at companies like Square, Brex, DoorDash, Lyft, you name it. And we were able to really diligence deals together. And we all have our own pockets of deal flow because we would know, oh, my coworker just left and they're starting a company or my friend from college back in the Midwest is starting a company. And so it was a really cool group of women kind of hosting founders and then deciding individually if we wanted to invest. And in parallel to that, I also read Jason Calacanis's book, Angel. That was really helpful as just like a crash course on all the terminology. You know, I wish that I could recommend like, you know, a female author, given that I'm, I've been trying to like kind of associate myself with a lot of female investors, but Jason is great because he's democratized a lot of his knowledge. And so that book, I recommend to every single person that wants to start angel investing. And so that plus the council really got me off the ground where I felt like A, I have like this book to teach me the basics. And then B, I have this group of people who's all learning together. And we have a couple of experts that I can ask questions to, and I don't feel silly because it's a safe space. And so I think you have to have that network and it sometimes is not, it's not clear how you're going to form it, but it does come together. Like the more you put your word out there, people come back to you. And that's exactly what I did at that founder event. And so you probably guess where that's headed, but I fell in love with the council instantly. <laughs> and Courtney was taking on a partner role at Sousa Ventures at the time. And so stepping into more of an advisor role at the council. And so I stepped in to help Annabelle run it and her and I have been co-leading it for the past three years as just an angel community. And so you know, along the way is when we decided to launch a fund, which I can get into separately, but I'll, I'll stop there. I was like, I don't want you to stop. I was sitting back <laughs> and getting cozy. Like, just tell me all the ways. Um, okay. For a foundation for folks who may not know or who may misunderstand, how do you define angel investing versus any other kind of investing? Such a good question. Okay. So angel investing is investing. I did have somebody ask me, like they wanted me to invest in a coffee shop and it was basically a donation. Like they, they were not going to do a revenue share or anything like that back. So <laughs> Can like, you just give us money, think, just give us yeah, money. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so people, not everybody knows what an angel investor is, right? But an angel investor is actually somebody who takes a risk on you fairly early on when you're building a very scalable business. And there are different types of angel investors. You know, some will invest in like consumer packaged goods. Some will invest in tech companies. Some will invest in brick and mortar businesses and restaurants and things like coffee, but there's always an expectation that because they're getting in so early, they are going to be sharing in the upside with you and that it's better for them to get in early than wait until you've proven everything out. And so for me, I focus on the technology sector. The other thing that's interesting, especially in the technology sector is you're definitely focused on the private markets. So it's different than investing in the stock market because those companies are available to anybody to invest in at any time. 
as an angel investor in tech or venture, basically you're finding companies that nobody really knows about yet. Some people do, but they are not yet listed on, you know, the New York Stock Exchange. And so you're really kind of like digging for those diamonds and trying to find them and trying to get in early. And many times it's way earlier than other people get the opportunity to invest in them. So I know early investors in Uber, Jason Calacanis is one of them. They made like a thousand X on their investment in that company because they got in so early. And even if Uber struggled on the public market, they already made so much money by the time it even hit the public market. And so that's what really also fascinated me is like, there's this whole crew of people, mainly men who are, you know, generating a ton of wealth and nobody else even has access or visibility to it. So how can I get over there? And so, yeah, so that's in a nutshell, angel investing is basically making decisions that are fairly risky, but have a high reward associated with them if they do well. And it can be very binary. So you need to go in with that mindset that, you know, many of the things that I invest in may fail and knock on wood, all of my companies are still in business right now. But they do say that like nine out of 10 can fail between the time that you invest and the time that they go through an exit, which might be them getting acquired or them going public. And that's usually when you're seeing the return or is it it can be structured differently. So I guess the question there is, who's negotiating the structure? Who's deciding the amounts? Is this you representing yourself going in and talking to the CEO or the founder? Do you bring in a counsel with you to do that? Who's negotiating these deals? Yeah, so there's the due diligence period and then there's the negotiation period. So due diligence, I do mainly by myself. I talk with a lot of founders and I'm going out there and meeting with them. That's all me. But then if I need to vet something like it's a healthcare deal or fintech deal and I want to talk to one of my friends at a firm or or somewhere like that, I will bring them in on due diligence. And that's where like more of the counsel comes up. Mm -hmm. When it comes to negotiating deals and valuations, basically the value of a company is called a valuation. That's a general term that everybody uses in venture. And what's interesting is a lot of, if you look at market caps on the public market, that's like, Somewhat, that's basically what they're valued at on the public market. It might be like 34 billion for a big company. And then, you know, as an angel investment, you may have invested when it was worth like $5 million or $10 million if you're investing at pre-seed or seed. And so every kind of zero that you add to the valuation at that stage makes a magnitude of difference in terms of what your return is going to be in the end. But you also have to be fair with the founder because based on what they've built by the time they're talking to you, they have to feel good about the valuation that you're coming in at as well. And some of those tides are turning right now with the market and everything. But to date, it had been a very founder friendly market. And, you know, really like the founder is going to take the best deal that they get. For me, because I typically am writing smaller checks into rounds, not they're getting bigger. As an angel, they were like, you know, fairly small. And now as a venture fund, I have a lot more capital to put into these rounds. But still, there are way bigger players than me investing at the same rounds as me. And so the biggest investor in the round is typically called the lead. And they set the terms with the founder. And so they have a lot more sway because they might be writing like a million dollars into a company and they're saying, I'll give you this million dollars if you will, you know, get it, if we can get in at this valuation because we have this like ownership target or we only invest at these valuations and that, that puts some pressure on, on founders. But typically we kind of accept whatever valuation the lead has set because we invest in the same round that they're investing in. Sometimes we get in earlier than the lead and I basically kind of defer to the founder but I do make sure that whatever they're suggesting makes sense. There's kind of like a chart that's helpful on the internet, also produced by Jason Calacanis, who uh, democratizes all this stuff. But it's called like the valuation traction matrix. And it basically every milestone that a founder hits, their company becomes more valuable. So 
if they're talking to you and they just have an idea on a napkin, not super valuable, but it has some value attached to it. Like it can be worth like three or $4 million, the company and the founder themselves. And then once they have a product built, but they haven't had anybody use it yet, that adds value to the company. If they have their initial users, but they're not paying yet, that adds value to the company. Once they start paying and you're seeing revenue come in, that adds value to the company. And then finally, once you see traction, not just revenue, but repeat customers, that adds value. And then from there, you're looking at like that revenue and traction growing over time. And and you're evaluating a lot of different factors too. But that's what I try to make sense, or I try to just make sure that whatever they're proposing as valuation like makes sense generally, but within a range. I'm not trying to nickel and dime them. I mean, when you when you mention even just nickel and diming, I think so many people don't understand. Like it's 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 opaque what different investment levels are at. So even at the smallest level, when you talk about like seed or pre-seed angel investing, what would you say is the smallest investment that somebody could make that would still be viable within that round? Yeah, that's super a great question as well. There are multiple ways to invest as an angel investor. And so the piece of paper that kind of shows everybody who's invested in a company is called a cap table. If you wanna be directly on the cap table, which means you give your money directly to the founder, you typically, you either have to have like a major, like I'm gonna be a value add and like I've, I'm like a marketing genius. I'll help you with any, anything marketing, but I'm only gonna give you, I can only afford like a five to $10,000 check or some founders will even accept like, you know, lower than that. But a lot of times they don't want, if they're trying to raise like a million dollars, they can't waste their time like talking to a million people who want to write like a thousand dollar check into their round, but there are now these syndicate leads. And so you can ask, you can invest through what's called an SPV or syndicate, which allows you to invest as little as a thousand dollars. And you're depending on the syndicate lead to go find the deal, bring back the information to you. And you decide if you want to invest alongside that syndicate lead and you can invest a thousand dollars, $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, whatever you want into that round. The catch is that when you do that, you share some of the upside with that syndicate lead. And then there's also, you know, investing in venture funds like mine, where you're actually entrusting that lead to pick all the deals. And you're saying, I don't have time to diligence all these things, but I want exposure to 30 companies, you go pick them. So there are different ways to do it. But I would say that depending on structures that you're going after, investing as low as $1,000 is reasonable. But when you want to start getting onto the cap table, I actually, I will say like a lot of my first investments, I was investing like, you know, $5,000, but I was able to tell founders, you know, I'm able to help you with operational challenges, scaling challenges, hiring and firing, you know, knowing when it's time to do that, knowing how to write a job description, all sorts of things that we take for granted that we're doing every day in our jobs, but founders that, you know, may have always been, you know, entrepreneurs and working at really small companies, they don't necessarily know how those processes scale over time. So yeah, that's where you could start. And then investing in a fund that typically, it just depends on the fund, like small funds, you can invest like 50K or 20K into depending what the, the general partner is willing to accept because they have limited slots that they can allow based on like SEC guidelines. So it depends what their target fund size is and and various things. But yeah. This is fascinating. I mean, and, and I think what's amazing about it is when you break down the numbers, it feels like, because it's always, I think a lot of people view anyone who invests as you have to already have a lot of money, right? You would have yeah. had to inherit something or work at a unicorn company or sell a bunch of stock. And now I have all this excess cash that I'm sitting on and I'm going to invest it. And it's, it feels so unattainable. But when you say that there's amounts that are 
$1,000, $5,000. I mean, like even as an entry point to yep. kind of get your feet wet and experience it. I don't know that everybody understands that it, it is, not. it could be so close yeah. and kind of looking at your experience. I think it's really impressive that you seem to keep picking winners. I imagine you have some sort of a list that you go off of or indications when you are looking at a company and doing your diligence that tells you, yes, this is a safe or incredible bet versus I don't know that I'm going to go down that road. So what's on your short list that keeps making you pick yeah. winners? I want to, yeah. Yeah, th that's a great question. So they're kind of like the table stakes list that, that you're referencing. And then there is where you just kind of have to make sure that you've talked about all these things with the founder or that they've offered up that information. Otherwise, you're missing a key component. And then what I think is actually the most important because of the stage I invest in, I invest at pre-seed and seed, which is very early. Like pre-seed yeah. could be that could be that the product hasn't been built yet, or it could be the product is built, but we really don't know if anybody's going to pay for this yet. And we're still, we have not reached product market fit, or it's like very early revenue. So at pre-seed to me, the founder and the team that they've assembled around them, it could just be the founder, or it could be the founder and like two people. That is basically the most important thing at that time and pretty much ever like, but then more factors come into play after that, that you have to consider. And so what I like to understand from them is a, why are you doing this? Because if they don't have a personal tie to the business that they're building, as soon as times get tough, they're going to be out of there. The life for a founder is not glamorous at all. It might sound great like, oh, you get to make your own schedule and run your own business. But really, you know, they're many times not taking a salary. They have to deal with fundraising and building at the same time, which is a lot of pressure. And then they're going to have team dynamic issues as they're building over time. And they're just going to have a lot on their shoulders. And then if something like this market downturn happens, and they're like, well, I could just, you know, go take a great salary at a tech company and leave this all behind. They may choose to do that. And so you want to make sure that the founder that you're investing in has a real reason why they're doing this that's going to keep them going. And so I'd like to ask that question up front. Why are you doing this? And then the second question I like to ask is what's your ultimate vision for this company? And what I'm looking for is a big vision. A lot of times, you know, there's there's no right or wrong answer. Like there's no right or wrong way to design your business goals, but if I, as a, an investor, am looking for venture-sized returns on this. I need to know that you want to build something extremely scalable that's going to be tackling a massive market, and you have a really clear go-to-market plan about how you're going to get into that market and then expand from there. So those are the two big things. And on, what I don't like to hear, which actually like this can really vary from VC to VC and even geography to geography. I tend to be like, I'm in Silicon Valley, so I'm in this like world of optimism. But I actually don't like to hear we want to get acquired really early on. And I know some other venture capitalists that love to hear that. They're like, oh, wow, yeah. there's a really quick path to acquisition here. But I am going for like, you know, really high returns. And so to me, I, I like to hear that founders are like, I am not looking to sell this business anytime soon. I want to grow it to as big as I can and potentially take it public someday or, you know, obviously evaluate deals as, as they come in for potential acquisitions. And it's good to see that they've done some market comps to show that if we were to get acquired, like these are the sorts of companies that could acquire us. And what I'll do is even like go back and look what was the size of those acquisitions? Were they really small and early or were they like very late? And for those sorts of companies that they're citing. But ultimately, I like to hear that they're in it for the long run. They really want to build this. They're not looking for a get rich quick like path. They're really focused on building this business because they're super passionate about it. And then the list of items, those are the two big ones. And then the list of items that I go after, I'm going off the top of my head, so 100% miss something. But this I like to make sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to make sure that we've talked about basically 
first of all, like sector doesn't make sense because I invest in only four areas at those two stages I mentioned. Future of work, fintech, logistics and supply chain, and I'm missing one. I will think of it. We'll come back. So future of work, logistics and supply chain, fintech, and then digital health. And so those are the sectors I'm really interested in investing in. And so I kind of, because I have so much deal flow now, I kind of just block everything else out. Once I know that it makes sense with my thesis, I will then make sure that we've talked about competition and that the founder understands the competitive landscape and not only some of the big players and like legacy players that they're going after, but also the like budding startups that are coming out around the same time as they are. And like they understand that whole ecosystem really well. And many times they understand it better than I do. And so I, I'll have to go and kind of do my research on my own and ask around, make sure we're not missing something. And I like to make sure that they have a clear differentiator between those and it's, and that it's not too busy. Like you don't want to invest in something where it's like everyone is building this type of thing right now. And yes, you're a little differentiated, but there's just so much anybody could creep into your territory at any time. And then I like to talk through kind of their how they plan to make money. Because um, lots of times there's great ideas, huge problems that need to be solved and really creative solutions to solve them. But at the end of the day, you have to ask, like, is the end consumer or enterprise partners that you're going after, are they willing to pay for this? Do they have the budget? Where does it rank on their priority list? And what are they willing to pay? And what sort of validation has this founder done to understand that? Because they're building, they're taking a huge risk on that right now that this this person or entity is going to be willing to pay for it. And then another thing I like to go through if they have any revenue to show is how has it looked over time? And, you know, just month by month, like, have they shown consistent growth? And if not, it's okay, but they need to be able to explain that. So, you know, some some businesses are seasonal or go through, you know, a massive pivot in the middle. And so I like to talk through those things and understand how they approach them. Then I like to talk about team. And so sometimes it's just one to three people on the team at the time that I'm talking to them. But I like to talk through, like, how much money are you raising and why and what are going to be the first roles that you hire and if there is an existing team or co-founder, I like to know how did they meet each other? Have they worked together before? Because that's another thing can, that can really blow up a company early on is if the yes. co-founders end up not getting along. And so I like to understand that and make sure they have clear like roles and responsibilities that are different. Because if they're always like on top of each other, it's going to be difficult. And then on our team, just understand like the different experiences that people have had. I like to see that it's diverse, not just in terms of demographics, but in, in terms of types of knowledge that everybody's bringing to the team, types of experiences everybody's bringing to the team. So those are a few examples. And then we, we get into market sizing and where, like how, what's their go-to-market plan? What's their product roadmap? Like, what are they building first? And how are they deciding how to build that? And most importantly, how much money, I won't say most importantly, but how much money are they trying to raise? And what goal is that going to help them hit within what time frame? And what are the line items that they're going to be spending that money on in order to get to that goal? So that's really important, too, to just make sure they're not just raising money just to raise money, but they're being diligent about what they're going to use it on. And it's actually going to translate to metrics that will help them raise their next round to keep the company on a healthy growth trajectory. It's as you were going through the checklist, I couldn't help but think that the last, call it two, two and a half years, have probably introduced so many more hurdles and blind spots and interesting ways that people have to answer a lot of those questions. So like in the last two and a half years, how has just what's gone on in the world impacted how people are answering these questions? Or have you seen founders who normally would have a very, very successful company, but they started at the wrong time? Like what are yeah. some of your main learnings from just the last two and a half years? 
Yeah. Okay. This was really interesting. We're getting into the good stuff. So yeah, in 2020, obviously we had COVID break out in like around March. It was like full panic yeah, mode. March 4th. Would, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I think a lot of what I will say about the VC industry is I do see a lot of like fear mongering and like jumping on the bandwagon instantly as soon as something goes wrong. And so I think that puts a lot of stress on founders. And obviously, like, you know, we're in a tough market now. But when COVID broke out, everybody just kind of like froze. Even I was about to go out and start raising my venture fund. And Annabelle, like my senior advisor and partner in the angel community, and I were like, this is not our time. Like, let's put it on pause for a little while because we don't know how it's going to go. And I'm sure a lot of founders were thinking that too. And so I think there was this period of time where everybody was frozen. It was pretty short. It was like, from what I saw, like where I'm sitting, it felt like three to four weeks where VCs were like, we don't know what to do. We don't know if we should be waiting um, to see how big this thing blows up or or what. And then there was a period of time where everybody was like, we're going to keep investing, but we're only investing in like these COVID-centric businesses because this is the new normal. And so right. kind of like it w- almost felt like a short-sighted period of time where I'm trying to think of an example, but just something that was like addressing like the need of the moment, like toilet paper or something like that. That's I'm <laughs> exaggerating, but but it was like this isn't going to be a problem forever. But everybody's like really really focused on this right now, and so like I like workout saw, gear, like right, like home yeah, workout gear was exactly, one of those, right? Yeah. Like Peloton Perfect. exploding. I mean, I'm wearing yes. it on my shirt, it, but Perfect like example. that, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw like so many fitness apps like proposed during that time and getting a lot of funding during that time. And then after that, it was kind of like, okay, everybody has normalized. We realized that there are some short-term trends of COVID that are almost like risky to bet on, bet everything on because this is a temporary thing. And then there are long-term impacts of COVID on our supply chains, you know, in the way that we even just conduct business together, whether it's live or virtual. And so that was like, okay, now we know where we're focusing. So it was really kind of like a period of time. It felt kind of quick, to be honest. And the economy also kind of felt like it bounced back fairly quickly. And then I actually saw some incredible companies get founded during that time. Like Daybreak Health, one of the companies that I invested in, I invested in, I think right before all this, or no, I think it was right around just like that March, 2020. Cause I remember there were some tailwinds from COVID, you know, and it's a mental health app for teens and mental health was like, a, becoming less stigmatized, B, becoming more important because of COVID and everything stressing everybody out in the world. And then like C, we had like telehealth becoming like a huge, like the new thing for medical. And we believed that that was going to stick around. And that company invested in very early on. And now they've done super well, like got into Y Combinator, were, had a follow-on round from Lightspeed and have done very, very well. So that was great. So there were companies that were just like, we're going to get through this and we're not stopping. And they were working on the right things at the right time. And then this latest one has been a little more probably frustrating for everyone involved because it has gone on longer. We don't know how long it's going to go on. Nobody has a crystal ball to say this is going to be over, you know, on X date. And it's weird because in some ways it's like nothing ever stopped and we're like acting, you know, like nothing is wrong. And then in other ways you can feel that things are slowing down. You know, you read about the tech layoffs and and I feel it definitely on, you know, the fund side, like LPs are the people that invest in funds. And many times like you're talking with high net worth individuals or operators like ourselves at, at tech companies and people who are, you know, looking to invest in different areas. 
And now all of a sudden, like a lot of their money is in the stock market. And so they're like, well, I don't know. And so it's a lot of fund managers right now are also, you know, feeling that trickle effect. And then that's going to slow them down, which is then going to slow down the capital of getting to founders. So that one, I am definitely seeing some slowdowns. And I think at first what I saw was a lot of founders kind of froze. Even when some VCs were saying we're still investing, a lot of the founders were nervous that it was a bad time to start because once you start fundraising, you have to keep up the momentum to keep people excited. And so they're afraid to start. But now I am seeing like a lot of them are realizing this is gonna keep going on and they can't afford to wait. And so they're starting. And I think we'll see a lot of that in this quarter and Q4 where it's like the startups that have been holding out that are you know, really good companies, but they've been holding out to see what happens. You know, I think in Q3, Q4, they're going to start getting uncomfortable with the amount of runway that they have left and um, going to try to fundraise more. But I will still say that I'm still seeing a lot of great companies get funded right now. So if any, you know, founders are listening to this thinking there's no way, no hope, I think if you're building something that makes sense and is, you know, very relevant, like pre, during and post this market downturn, that is, you know, something that's going to do well. And I think the biggest shift that we've seen on investors' minds is even in this world of optimism that I live in, this bubble, everybody wants to understand unit economics and profitability. How are you going to become profitable? But I think depending on which investor you're talking to, that's kind of a sliding scale in terms of how important that is in the face of growth. So it's like sometimes you have to make trade-off decisions. Either we grow faster and it takes us longer to become profitable or we become profitable and we're going to grow slower. And I think certain investors are still looking for that, you know, really high growth path. And I'm one of them, but I need to know that there is a path to profitability and that we're constantly making steps to get there. And if we're not going to be profitable anytime soon, there has to be a really clear strategy on how the company is going to stay in business and be able to fundraise and everything else to get there. So yeah, that's a long answer to your question, but there's a lot going on. I feel like it also could have been so much longer and equally as interesting. And it kind of makes me think too, sort of one of the the last things is flipping this on its head. And I think you're right. One, I know that there are founders who listen to this show or future founders who are listening. And I think a lot of them right now don't really know what the right thing is to do. And they themselves have never evaluated an investor. So the same way that there are some early investors who want to get into it for the first time and they're like, I don't know how to evaluate, like what is a what's a good bet versus a bad bet? Like what's, you know, what does it look like? Same thing for, you know, a founder is how would you recommend that a first time founder evaluate if an investor or venture capital or a PE firm or whatever it may be is actually right for them? What should mm-hmm. they look out for? That is a really good question. So what should they look out for? There's a lot of things to look out for. I actually think that looking for investors that have been pretty consistent in their reputations, what they're all about, their thesis, kind of pre and during and post this, like, you know, whole entire past, like two and a half years, obviously they're going to make some changes because we've, we've learned a lot and we were in a different world than we were in 2019. But what you don't want to see is like a bandwagon VC where it's like in 2019, I was investing in enterprise tech. And then in 2020, I switched to telehealth. And then in 2021, I switched to Web3. And then in 2022, I'm switching to logistics and supply chain. Like that would just be like, okay, clearly this person just following the trends. And they might, you know, as soon as I'm not trendy, I might not get a follow on check from them in the next round. Because to many first-time founders, and I can relate with this as a first-time fund manager, getting that first check, you know, feels amazing into like your existing round that you're trying to raise. 
But the worst thing that could happen is that you get that check from them. And then the next round, they actually, you know, they give you a really hard time about what you're building. They want you to build something else or they are not following on. And that's a bad signal to other investors. You don't have to follow on for other investors to not get freaked out. But I think if they're positioning themselves early on as like a, hey, we, we write an initial check into your company in your seed round. And then at series A, we're going to like triple down. And then you can't really trust them to do that because they're kind of, you know, flipping around on what they invest on. That is a red flag. And then I would also talk, if you can, like try to get other founders experiences working with them. So if you're talking to a VC and they seem really interested in like leading your round. The leads are the ones that really have the most sway because they may ask to join your board, which is a long-term commitment. They're going to have a long, lot of long-term input on your business. I would look at other founders in their portfolio, which many of them have listed on their website and see if you can get in touch with any of them and just say, Hey, you know, I'm evaluating this firm and thinking about accepting a term sheet from them. Do you have a, a second to chat? And I think either you're going to get, Oh my God, they're amazing. Go for it. Or you're going to get, let's hop on a call. So yeah. I think just making sure you do your diligence, just like the VC is doing on you, they are definitely going to do reference checks and stuff on you. And so I think it's fair to do a reference check on them. The other thing, this isn't necessarily a red flag, but something I want to share with first-time founders is that think of this as kind of when you're out fundraising for the first time, think of this as how you would apply for jobs. You don't want to spend all your time and put all of your eggs in one basket for your dream job, spend two and a half months on it, go through the entire interview process. And then at the end, get an offer and then wish it was higher and restart the whole process somewhere else or not get the offer and have to restart somewhere else. You don't want to do things in series. You want to do them in parallel to the extent that you can. And so, you know, similarly, you might get to the end of your fundraise and end up with three term sheets from three different VCs. And you can decide based on a number of factors, how, what's their reputation with founders? How easy are they to work with? How much did I enjoy talking to them throughout the process? Did they seem like they were adding good insights to my business throughout the process? And then, you know, finally, what's the price that they're trying to get me to, you know, give them equity in my business for? And all of those factors together might determine why you would choose one out of those three. But if you only have one term sheet because you've only been talking to one VC or you get no term sheets because you've only been talking to that one VC and they end up passing at the last minute, that's, you know, both of those situations could have been avoided potentially. And so I would just say, I do know a founder that, you know, she had this VC that was, they're amazing and they're showing a lot of interest in her and her company. And so she went through the full process with them, not even thinking about it. She's a first time founder. And then at the end, they offered her a valuation that was way lower than what she thought her business should be worth, but she didn't have the time to go back and restart with someone else. And so she ended up taking it, but she was annoyed that she hadn't added on a couple of other options because clearly her business was attractive and it would have attracted other investors potentially to invest in it. So, yeah. An absolutely incredible list all the way around. And I feel like we are just scratching the surface. And that's what happens on this show is we just scratch the surface and leave everybody wanting more. So this has brought us to our very end section, the rapid reveal, where we have five questions and you have 60 seconds or less to answer each. Are you down? I am down. Let's do it. Okay, number one. What is the best dream you've ever had? So I, I thought about this. I cannot remember my best dream I've ever had, but I thought about a funny one I had recently. Yes. So my husband, I'm always kind of joking with him that he's too much of a technology like optimist. So he'll trust whatever his like app is telling him versus like what he's seeing in, in real life. And 
we were staying at this hotel that was like one block away from a parking garage. And it was like really hard to get into the parking garage or the hotel because of all these one-way streets. This was in real life. And then, (laughs) yeah, while we were staying at this hotel, I had this dream that we had been like driving around the block again and again, and we kept missing the entrance to get into the hotel. And that Apple Maps told him to like pull into like a garage and, and actually like drive our car into the back of a semi which then like drove the car into the ocean after we got out with our luggage. And it was just funny because I woke up and told him about the dream and he was just like laughing because he was like, that really like gets to the root of like what you're like, you think I would literally just like drive our, our car into a semi in like up a ramp into the back of the semi, not like a crash, right. but yeah. like drive it, you know, off into an ocean somewhere because Apple Maps told me so. So that was funny. So yeah, that's the one I'll give you. <laughs> It's amazing. It reminds me of National Lampoon's, what is that, European vacation where they just keep driving in a circle. He's like, look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament for four years. It happens. All right. Number two, what is an irrational fear of yours? Yeah. So this is a new one and more news that I'm dropping on your show, but I am actually pregnant. And so I, you know, I've always been so, thank you. I've always been so excited for other professional women I work with and know when they're having a baby and even dads, like, you know, upcoming dads. And so I was really surprised at like the fears that have crossed my mind while being pregnant and like launching a business of my own and fundraising and all that stuff. It's like, you know, all of a sudden I've had this fear and I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it feels like it's like a fear that like I might lose my career somehow or that others might, you know, not think that I'm capable of of what I am capable of because I have a baby or I'm a mom, which is like such outdated thinking. Like I would tell any one of my friends, like drop that trash, but it still has somehow like crept into my mind. So I've just been really surprised by it. I know it's irrational, but it's been surprising. And I'm sure that a lot of people can relate with that. Ooh, those are valid. I'm I'm a mom of a four and a half year old, and we should spend some time talking about just yes. all of the all of the fears. You know, yeah. it's just it turns on. Congratulations! Thank you. That's absolutely incredible. Brings us to number three. If you could do anything else for a living, what would it be? Okay, so I thought about this one. This is not. You might not be happy with my answer, but I <laughs> I really would be investing. So I, okay. I think that is my dream job and why I left my my day job, like, you know, an operator job a few weeks ago is because I've just been dreaming for the past two years of like how I want to spend my time. And I love talking to founders because they are all, you know, intoxicated by their own ideas and highly, highly influential and inspirational people. And I get to work with them every day and I get to, you know, work also with a lot of amazing co-investors and things. And so that is my dream job and I'm loving it. But I will say when I was young, I wanted to be an archeologist and be digging up fossils. So yeah. Okay, awesome. And it's unique because I caught you right when you were like, I am gonna stop what I'm doing and follow yes. my dream. So exactly. it's not even really a cop out answer. It's just inspirational. And yes. so we'll go with it. Number four, what was your most impactful childhood memory? Yeah, so I have two. One of them, I have an uncle in Japan And I only saw him maybe once or twice when I was growing up, but we always thought of him as our cool uncle because he tames like lions, tigers, and bears. I'm not even joking. That's his job. And so as kids, we were like, this is the coolest guy ever. Like he would come and he kind of looks like our dad, but he like carves things out of leather and he has all these cool stories about polar bears. Cool guy. Cool guy. Super cool guy. So he came to visit us once and he, we had a globe at our house and he just kind of spun the globe and he had traveled you know, all around kind of working with animals. And he was pointing out all these different countries and telling us things about those countries. And that changed my life forever. Like I grew up in Indiana and I think 
ever since that moment, I wanted to try living somewhere else and wanted to kind of get as far away from home. I love my family, love Indiana, but I was like, I need to expand my horizons and do what this guy did. I was probably like six years old or something, but I remember distinctly that moment. That was it. And then the other one that inspired me as a professional is my dad himself. He, both of my parents were artists um, growing up and my dad was a graphic designer and he started his own ad agency with a friend. It ended up booming for 15 years and it was like a digital ad agency in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And when I look back now, I'm like, that is so cool that he did that. But I really saw him struggle with a lot of the ups and downs of just building a business. And I think that really changed like the sort of people I want to surround myself with and the sort of person that I want to be professionally. So, yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Now I want to meet your uncle. He sounds really cool. And last but certainly not least, what skill set are you actively working on? So I am definitely working on sales. So I, because I'm raising my own venture funds now, I a big part of it is fundraising. And then also in my yeah. last role at Atmos, it was my first time also managing a sales team as part of my scope. And so this past like year and a half has definitely been, or even two years has been all of a sudden, like this is a whole new world that you need to understand. And so I learned a ton at, it, at Atmos, worked with some incredible salespeople. And then I'm actually able to translate a lot of that to my fundraising process. I would still say that I'm not a sales natural at all. Yeah. I've got a lot of growth in that area to go because a lot of it, you know, it comes down to you and how confident and, and structured you are in, in even like your follow-ups and things like that. And so I've just realized that's like the best super skill you can have. And so I'll probably never be a natural, but I am striving to be one. Well, I love it. And what a good answer, especially, you know, for what you do. I honestly think all the best salespeople in the world are always working on it. And given all of the incredible information that you just dropped in the last 50 minutes, I imagine people are going to want to connect with you, talk to you more, get interested in your fund and what you are doing. How do people find you? Yeah. So please feel free to email me at amber at the council.co, um, not com. And I would love to hear from anyone. If you're thinking of founding a company, again, I like getting in early. There's nothing that's too early for me. And then if you're interested in investing in a venture fund, I would love to tell you all about the council fund. And yeah, please feel free to reach out to me and also follow me on Twitter. It's Amber Illig, A-M-B-E-R-I-L-L-I-G. Woo. Thank you for coming on the show, dropping all of that incredible knowledge. I've learned more in this episode than I have in a really, really long time. So thank you for being on the show. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Christine. I, the questions were amazing. So thank you oh, good. for that. It's been fun. Good. And to everyone else, we will catch you next time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.